Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Firefighters Podcast, where we seek to develop, inspire, and motivate the world of the emergency services operator through a series of wide-ranging conversations. Now, before we go any further, just hit that rate, follow, or subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. It's a key performance indicator for us and helps us reach even more people. Now, here's what we've got for you today. What do you know about the big C word? Cancer is one of those words that nobody ever wants to hear. Cancer in its definitive form is a complex group of diseases characterized by the uncontrolled growth and spread of abnormal cells in the body. It can occur virtually anywhere in the body and may form solid tumors to affect the blood or lymphatic systems. Understanding the background of cancer involves exploring its causes, development and the efforts to diagnose and treat it. Now in the world of firefighting, this has become a much more widely discussed topic because we're seeing a lot more of it, unfortunately. Now, efforts to address firefighter cancer globally have been significant, in fairness. Firefighters are exposed to various carcinogens during firefighting activities, and there has been a growing recognition of the elevated cancer risk in the profession. There's been some really key areas, initiatives, and developments from ongoing research aiming to identify specific carcinogens and the impact on us as firefighters and first responders. There's lots of awareness campaigns highlighting the increased risk of cancer among firefighters with urgent preventative measures and early detection. We have seen the implementation of stricter safety protocols, including the use of advanced personal protective equipment to minimise exposure to harmful substances. There is many behavioural aspects to it, with the improved cleaning procedures for gear and equipment to reduce contamination risks. And there's been a tremendous amount of advocacy for implementing a legislative change and recognising the support firefighters need in dealing with occupational cancer. Across the world, but especially also in the UK, we have seen regular health checks come in with cancer screenings for firefighters to facilitate early detection and intervention. We are seeing the development and further sharing of comprehensive enhanced training programs to educate firefighters about the risk of exposure to carcinogens and the importance of preventative measures that we can do as well as so much of the great stuff around post-incident decontamination procedures to minimize our exposure and the long-term effect that that's going to have on all of us. But today we're going to be talking about what happens when you do hear that word, when someone does sit down with you and hit you with the C-bomb. My guest today is Stephen Burns, aka Robbie Burns. Robbie is a watch manager in the operational assets team in the UK Fire and Rescue Service and he shares his very personal cancer journey with us today. Robbie followed his childhood dream to become a firefighter and joined the service in 2006, aged 34. Five years on, in November 2011, he felt he was at the peak of his physical fitness, taking part in marathons and 10 mile hell runs just for fun. But in January 2012, he first noticed blood in his urine. And after a quick Google, he reassured himself that it was due to the distance running and he ignored that first crucial warning. Two months later, he again had blood in his urine and approached his GP. The doctor advised him that he had a bladder infection and issued antibiotics. Eight months on, Robbie experienced yet another episode. And upon consulting a different doctor, he was referred the same day to a urology department in Portsmouth Hospital. During the following cystoscopy, one of many Robbie would have to endure... It revealed a huge coral-like growth attached to his bladder wall. He was told he had an aggressive cancer and that there would be a journey ahead. Today we're going to talk about Robbie's journey from then on. He's had over 30 surgeries. He's had nearly 20 sessions of chemotherapy. And he is still battling through this today. Some of the content from today's conversation you may find upsetting. That is, of course, not our desire 
it is to give a very honest opportunity for someone who has had to walk this path and share some of those lessons learned. Some people, believe it or not, in the fire and rescue service community still think this is a myth. They think it is a big, scary monster in the closet under the bed and are yet to be convinced that we are exposing ourselves to a great deal of carcinogenic material. Now, hopefully, you don't think that. You may be listening to that going, ah, BSP, everyone believes this. Well, hopefully, that will soon be the case. Robbie doesn't know how he got the cancer. Robbie doesn't know that it was directly associated with his role as a firefighter, but he knows it's certainly been a contributing factor. So I hope you take a lot away from this. I hope it is emotive for you. I hope it drives you to consider your daily actions, your daily behaviours, and gives you some confidence and assertiveness to address the cavalier attitude to which other people may be subjecting themselves to the very same dangers and unnecessary harm that so many of us, including myself, have done in the past. If we knew better, we would have done better. Now we know better. So it's our chance to do better. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. Be sure to check out the notes for a couple of crucial links that we talk about on today's episode. And please be safe out there. I'll see you on the other side. January 2012. Take me back 12 years. Where was your life at then? So, in chaos, uh, to be honest with you. I um, So the, the, the history behind that was I was fit and well uh, for a lot of years, doing lots of serious running. I was um, doing particularly stupid hell runs, things like that, across mountainous regions. Anyway, uh, in the January, it came to the... What are hell runs? Came- Just expand for us a little bit on hell runs, because that might be something people aren't familiar with. Yeah, so we, we ran a lot across different army planes, essentially, um, that were tank tracks, etc. previously, and um, fairly boisterous, to be honest. It was a, a half marathon, but it was up and down dale into water and just um, almost like being back in the military, to be honest, but on steroids, as you said. So, um, through through my own volition, too, you know, I, pay, I think I paid 40 quid a go to go and do this thing and to inflict that pain on me. So, yeah, particularly stupid. However... <coughs> um, in the January, um, so just giving you a level really that I was fairly fit going into the January, um, I had previously passed blood in my urine, which because of the distance running, um, I assumed, as you do, um, that it was just friction. And so Google, Dr. Google, that famous one, um, suggested that the blood in my urine was down to friction, down to distance, just down to dehydration, etc. So I gave it a stiff ignoring to for about nine months. Um, and then in the January, it I was peeing and it was literally a Ribena coloured urine. So um, I saw my GP again. A bit of context behind that. I had passed urine with blood in before and my doctor had given me some uh, antibiotics, which he thought was because of my level of fitness and because of the role, um, the lack of knowledge then was, well, you're a fit young man. I was 40. Um, It won't be anything sinister. So take these antibiotics. It's a urine infection. So I took that happily. In the January, it became... Uh, I had a car fire, actually, at uh, Haven't Fire Station down in Hampshire uh, about three in the morning. I went for a pee afterwards, and, yeah, it was horrific. So that day, I went to see my GP on an urgent, uh, and she sent me really wisely, actually, to a thing called a hematuria clinic. So, yeah, I was sent across to QA Hospital in Portsmouth, where they um, did an initial check, actually. They did a full body mass index, all that sort of stuff, all the, the less invasive stuff, um, which culminated, unfortunately, in a thing called a cystoscopy. Um, which is a camera, um, and uh, you know where this is going to go, um, to access the bladder. 
they need to go into the urethra. I've never seen that operation before. I imagine it's a little bit spicy. Uh, I always think that sort of thing should remain your out hole, never your in hole. Yeah. <laughs> Although um, that could be said of other holes in the body, but again, that's probably more people's life choices. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. I digress. Yeah, unless you're into German porn, yeah, I suppose, exactly. then you know it, it really is just that. So, so yeah, I kind of braced myself. They they did all the kidney checks and they were fine. So they lay you on the table. Um, in fact, I got dressed in a gown first in a little sub room. Uh, went in there. Luckily, I was in the military previously, so I was used to sharing a room with lots of other people. You know, in, in a or in ch- sometimes choosing to get completely naked, so it wasn't a major issue. Um, it was the, the start of um, that chipping away of any dignity that I had, to be fair. Um, so I was in a room, probably 12 by 12 feet, with three females, no drama. Um, so, yeah, going down, you, you lie on the settee, on the, on the, on the medical um, gurney, I suppose you'd call it, and then they insert the camera into the urethra after a period of about five seconds of gel insertion. So they insert gel into the tip of the penis and then about a, a little finger thickness uh, is the camera, uh, if you can imagine that sort of thickness, right into the bladder. So um, it's probably about uh, 80 centimetres, something like that. So it's about as long as your arm. The camera is slightly longer than your arm, and they just keep feeding it in. It's really slowly, and they have to you have to cough on certain periods just to get through the prostate because it's a sphincter, essentially, which is the most bizarre. At this moment in my life, I just wanted this thing out, so I had my eyes closed, uh, and it was just like, oh, my God, this is outrageous. What did you think was going on at this point? Like, why did you think they were doing these tests? What did you know? What have they told you so far? So uh, I was unsure. I probably, to be honest, I took the ferry from Gosport to Portsmouth in the morning, um, which is a a seven-minute journey. I still love it to this day. I've been doing it for years, but it's a lovely little part of England, and just get on a little ferry and go across the Solent. Anyway, um, I left from Gosport to Portsmouth and I kind of realised, I think then, this is probably the last time I ever get this ferry without a diagnosis. And it's quite profound, I know, but it was something that entered my mind just before going across. So I kind of knew, I kind of knew something was afoot and because I Googled it, of course. Um, and I was going for the worst case scenario, which was kidney cancer. And kidney cancer uh, is a different prognosis. <clears throat> so I thought the world was going to end and... Um, it would be a real challenge. So um, I kind of knew, but hoped that it wasn't going to be that. And um, the, the common thing is ha- common things happen, happen often. Uh, and bladder cancer is a really uncommon thing for a 40 year old. So again, that was in the back of my mind thinking I might be winging this. I might just be over exaggerating. It might be something else. What did you tell your missus at this time? Oh God. Um, so when I came home from the hospital, before I went, uh, I rang her in the morning, because it was a very quick thing. I went to see the doctor in the morning, and then she said, <clears throat> I didn't tell her. Um, I didn't tell her I was going across to the hospital. There was no need at that moment in time. I, you know, I, She was at work, you know. She, she had her own issues with her own job, and she's a scientist by trade, so she's got a lot to juggle with uh, in a medical profession. Um, so I got on with it, really. I caught public transport as well, which is strange but I don't know what I don't normally and that's not being a snob I just have a car so you know I wouldn't wouldn't utilize public transport unless it was better so yeah um when they got the camera into the the urethra and then through the prostate which was as I suggested really quite uncomfortable my eyes were closed at this stage and then the nurse said do you want to look and I was like fucking no just get this thing away from me get it out of me you know I was 
And of course, you're tense, which is the worst thing you can do with a urethra. You've tensed every, you know, your muscles are all. So this is now trying to grab hold of the camera, you know, so that you want it out, but they can't put it out now because it's <coughs> it's a catch-22 or a catch-something or other. Um, so she said, do you want to look? And then I had a quick eye open, um, just like, and uh, like a pirate, that was, wasn't it? That was quite a good pirate. Um, so I looked on the screen and there was a fist-sized coral tumour attached to the bladder wall. Uh, which was just ugly, disgusting, blood-infused uh, and uh, had its own blood supply, obviously, um, and was almost winking at you. It was waving in the in the bladder fluids and, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and then from there, everybody's face went glum in the room because it was quite a, an aggressive and quite a significant-sized tumour, so everybody kind of had an upside-down face at that stage, whereas before, they were still upbeat and, and the, the darkness entered the room almost. Um, so... Withdrew the camera, um, and that that was the end of normality, I suppose. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Gore-Tex Professional Fabrics. Now, we all know the working environment of a firefighter is filled with challenges. We face serious risks on the job, such as heat exhaustion, burns, physical and mental stress, and we frequently come into contact with high levels of toxic chemicals. Now, I have been wearing Gore-Tex for nearly two decades on the front line, working in hostile environments, tackling challenging incidents from firefighting to water incidents and in urban search and rescue environments. Gore-Tex have a well-earned reputation for protecting professionals in the fire and emergency services through their family of highly innovative, waterproof, breathable moisture barriers that exceeds global performance standards and are trusted worldwide. Gore-Tex, going further together. So yeah, I, I stood up from the process of the cystoscopy, feeling a little bit dizzy and a little bit, whew, just, just a rabbit in the headlights, I suppose. Um, still very surreal, still wasn't me. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. Um, and I remember going into the anteroom where I'd my civvies, my clothes were, so to go and get dressed back into my normal attire. Uh, and I woke up. So it seems, as we know now, that I'd fainted. So a thing called a nocturia. Um, I'd gone back into the um, anteroom, woke up on the floor. As I'd gone down, I headbutted the sink, which is... <clears throat> Don't advise that, actually. Ow. So I've gone down and, yeah, I've got quite a big nose and it's, it's been broken before, but that was more sort of talking when I should have been listening. But So this <laughs> one was a... <clears throat> um, so it caught me across the tip of my nose. You can just about see yeah, it. Yeah, no, white see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why, um, why, why did that so, just, just Why was the cause of that? So I think it was twofold. One was that I just had something inserted in the wrong way, as you said, mm-hmm. um, and the brain doesn't like that. So the brain will just try and shut down. It's huge, huge shock. God, what is that? Yeah. Um, so it was uh, a syncope. So it's called a mictuate syncope. So syncope is a faint, mm-hmm. uh, and mictuation, mic- to mictuate is to wee. So it's a, a weeing faint, essentially. Um, oh, wow. <clears throat> there was that. Yeah, yeah, that's the scientific uh, wording for it the, the real wording was that I was just overcome with shock I think overcome with yeah. it all and uh, I'd never fainted up until then never ever you know I'd never passed that in any way shape or form so this was just an overload of senses and yeah, information yeah, and it, yeah. my body didn't want to process it so so it shut down um, as I said I had by the set I don't know how long I was down for probably a couple of minutes to be honest um, 
because I could hear some talking when I came to. And then I remember walking back into the cystoscopy room, into the, the theatre, if you will, um, holding my nose and all over the place. And the nurses were like, oh, my God, what have you done? What have you done? And I remember one of them saying, that is going to cost me a load of paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because just like us like, work, you've you just know? created a new process there we've got to watch people for three minutes after they come out of the thing yeah. now simply yeah yeah so i change what they do which you know is a good thing because you shouldn't be falling over like that in a little room oh own. god imagine if an old um, lady bearing in mind this is in. old that's just just what i was going to say this is an older person's disease uh, yeah. so it is normally 60 plus you know people mm-hmm. with dodgy hips and you know things start to fail them so um, so, yeah, I've gone back into the room and holding my nose. Straight away, they paged the on-call uh, A&E doc who came running up. Uh, I'm now on a gurney type thing, uh, holding my nose with a big old split through it. So then they were whisking me down to A&E. So it's a really rubbish day. I've not never been to a hospital before. You know, I'd never had any sedation. or. <coughs> You've so, done well to get to 40. God. Yeah. God, I've had about three surgeries so far. Well, three big ones and then several oh, other yeah. ones. And, yeah, hospitals are weird. Right. it's great and yeah. we're so lucky to be alive at this period of time but it's not a fun place to make a regular visit to as you know better than anyone now. no no well yeah I'm kind of friends with them there on a first name term it's unfortunate <laughs> but, um, going back to the cystoscopy I remember um, having had that surgery in my nose but there was a young girl in there and I remember she was probably only nine or ten uh, I had a seven year old daughter at the time so I could really empathise and she was having a cystoscopy as well for whatever reason and I remember hearing you know it was just horrific for her so mm. in that in that respect I was quite lucky you know I, I took some solace from the fact that actually I am grown and I can process what's going on a little bit more yeah um, <clears throat> so yeah silver linings I suppose um, mm. so anyway yeah I'd gone in uh, that reframing the sorry, doc, that, that sorry. reframing is such a gift mm. and I find it's most and it's sad that it's most powerful and most prevalent in people that have really gone I feel like when you go through things that you've been through and are still going through because the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you and that makes the size of your spectrum but every time something better or something worse happens it's like your spectrum widens and then you almost got yeah. more context to reframe <laughs> things and go oh yeah but it's not that bad you know it's not this is it or it's not that absolutely you know, whereas yeah. for some people, yeah. we can catastrophize our way through the day with a series of very minor um, tragedies, which aren't even anything that we, you know, it's like a very small speed bump. You would roll over in the normal day, but some people that can yeah. absolutely knock them dead. Yeah, yeah. But it's all relative, isn't it? So your worst yes. day, as you just said, is your worst day, regardless of what that process is. Um, I think that pain is, is um, something that has... I'd not really. I broken my nose and my knuckle and knocked teeth out and stuff back in the day, um, and they were uncomfortable for sure. But then this was a different kind, as you know about pain, the surgery. This is a different kind of process, mm. uh, both physical and mental. So, I from that day, the black dog has really overtaken me on occasion. Um, mm. Sends you to a really dark place, as I'm sure you're aware of. And and sometimes you you know you need some assistance to get out of there. So, infrequently I go and see my GP. I'm still on antidepressants to this day to to get me through the. The challenges of it all. <clears throat> so, um, holding nose, covered in blood, poorly willy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, um, was down to A and E where the um, the young doctor. I remember he's um, what happened. What happened? And I remember looking him in the eyes actually and saying, "I've just been told I got cancer," and I fainted. He didn't say anything else. He didn't ask any more questions. He just got on with the stitching um, because I'd summed up. I think you know. 
that was that. My nose has gone because I fainted because I've just got this massive tumour that they want to get out. Um, So yeah, then proceeded the seven stitches across here, two black eyes closing rapidly, um, just looking like a mess really. Um, So had all that done and then had some paperwork shoved in my hand and basically we'll be in touch very soon. Uh, Just what is up, what is down, you know, what is left, what is right kind of situation at that stage. Bearing in mind, I'm still using public transport. My wife, actually, at this stage, had gone home and was looking after the two kids, collected them from childcare, etc. <clears throat> so I got had the you, bus back from... Had you two, contacted three, her already? No. No. Okay. No. Um, no, it was, um, I was still very, you know, what yeah, am I going to do? How am I going to process? What next step am I going to die, essentially? Um, how do I... Have I got things in place for that? How young were your so, children at this uh, time? Sorry. I got back on the... Five and seven, and I had uh, an older lad, so I've got a I know, very young, um, and and seventeen. So I've gone from a former marriage, uh, Sam, my eldest, who was seventeen at the time. So going through a difficult time of his own, just mm, hasten to add, you know, puberty <clears throat> and girlfriends, and <clears throat> yeah. So um, chaos reigned. Really, I got back on public transport now with two black eyes closing rapidly, looking like a panda with seven stitches. So it looked like I've been fisticuffs. Um, so. <laughs> Which is fine because I live in I live in Gosport and everybody has fisticuffs down here because it's rough. So um, should I edit that part? I don't know. No, no. <laughs> I'm not were, from were you, um, were you even so, Were you even <clears throat> conscious there? Though I mean, obviously you were conscious. I mean, like I've no I've no idea how I would feel in that moment. I felt like I'd just be numb. I don't know. You're thinking everything and nothing uh, at totally, the same time. Yeah. Yep. Is this real? Um, am I going to wake up? Yeah, it, literally, it was that you know that that cliche. Am I going to wake out of this? And is is that just been really horrible, really rubbish day? Yeah. Um, yes. Very bizarre. So um, I remember walking out of the hospital, getting towards the bus stop, and people were looking at me because of you know the significant facial injuries, and it was it was quite an, an odd one. Um, but as I said, I got back on the, the bus in Gosport and uh, got back to my my house. I remember opening the front door to see my daughter on the stairs. <clears throat> and then she fell over and collapsed as well when she saw me. So she literally lost her legs because of the state of my face. Um, and yeah, she was on the floor and then my wife was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? So she then came out and saw me. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think I, I don't remember a great deal of that part, but I remember taking my wife into the kitchen, closing the door with the kids outside of the room and saying, you know, I've, I've got a cancer in my bladder and we need to get things done. And then she, she's very strong, my wife. She works in the medical profession, as I said. She's she's been my 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 brick. Um, she's held me together really. When when it gets dark, you know, she's she's the person who kicks me in the ass, tells me to get on with it, which I need because it's easy Very for us to dwell, isn't it? It's easy for us to become dark. <clears throat> Absolutely, you know, I'm still here, twelve years on, thinking twelve years ago. Actually, I'm, I'm like, I remember looking at my old dog, bless her soul, Daisy Dog. She was beautiful, and she had a big lump on her shoulder. She was about thirteen or fourteen at the time. We had her till she was seventeen. Um, but I remember being with her that day, looking at her and thinking, who's going to pass first? Because quite a strange thing, you know, because we thought she had cancer as well at the time. And I was thinking, you know, it, yeah. yeah, it was just really, really hard. Just thinking, actually, shit, this is it. This is the start of the end. Um, in other news, this episode is brought to you in partnership with MSA Safety. Today, we have them to thank for the improved firefighter safety through connectivity in their brand new connected firefighter system. At the center of the connected firefighter platform is the MSA M1 SCBA with telemetry. 
you can view battery life, air pressure, and estimated time remaining either independently on the M1 itself or from the Lunar Connected device screen. Also, still with the air status alarm information, search status, and all of this provided to the Incident Command for confident decision making during the scene. That integrates straight in with the Lunar system, which is a wireless all-in-one device creating an independent search and rescue network, providing edge detection, enhanced personal thermal imaging, while simplifying post-scene reporting and data retention. One of the key parts of the Lunar is their FAST system, the Firefighting Assisting Search Technology. This combines directional and distance information with thermal imaging to help find separated teammates and decrease response time. It actually connects you to the other crews in the vicinity for a unified search during the time of mutual aid by instantly notifying the network of lunar devices when there is a downed crew member, allowing for a prompt search and rescue. All of this then plugs into the Biogrid system for cloud-based connectivity, real-time information, and data-driven decisions for the incident commander. Enables you to see the exact location of your firefighters on the scene. And it doesn't require you to be sat on the station. The MSA hub then provides a wireless gateway straight to the cloud, enabling wireless on-scene data for local and remote incident command for additional eyes on the scene. MSA are truly taking massive strides in the future of improved firefighter safety through connectivity. MSA is dedicated to increasing safety in the fire service through technological advancements. Various feature enhancements, new products, partnerships and integrations will provide additional capabilities readily accessible by products, software and services in the brand new MSA Connected Firefighter platform. Now back to the show. Were you annoyed? Were you angry? Were you upset? Absolutely. You Absolutely. Disappointed in and going forward. The world yeah. or yourself <clears throat> or I don't, I don't know. Horrified, horrified. So at, at that moment in time, um, it was, yeah, just disgusted that this could be me. And how, why? You know, why am I 40 and why am I having this potential trauma going forward, which turned out to be lots of trauma? Um, you know, why why have, why have I been chosen? Or, or I don't believe, I'm an atheist, I have to say. So it's, nothing for me is spiritual. I think religion me, has you know, died for a lot is. of people for a whole, whole bunch of different yeah. reasons. And I'm not... <clears throat> I'm not remotely religious and I'm whatever, you know, respect everyone and all their beliefs and all that sort of jazz. But yeah, yeah. The world is, it would be hard to find a logic or a plan or anything in some of the things that are manifesting in our um, conceivable world at the minute. <coughs> people, life, yeah. environment, you're just like. <sighs> Yeah. Anyway, we digress. I can but, yeah. yeah, whatever, whatever yeah, it is, yeah, even absolutely. if it's just the universe, you just think, "Oh wow, it's fascinating." Just what has happened mm. to cause that strange um, uh, adaptation of the cells in your body? What? Yeah, you know, why? Why is that? Yeah. Why? Yeah, absolutely. And why me? Um, so at that, when I was diagnosed, within a maybe. Three or four hours, I spoke to my best mate, Gav Atkin. So Gav is a star. He's a lovely guy from Middlesbrough for his sins. But, Doesn't um, make him a bad bloke. He was in the Navy still. So he was still serving in the Navy, which is my former career, as you know. So um, I rang him and said, you know, wow. Uh, he then left work, bless him, um, obviously told his boss that he needed to leave Sharpish, which is unusual for the military because they tell you when you leave. Yeah. Uh, anyway, within a, a pair of hours, he turned up and I met him in a Wetherspoons pub in Gosport, again, fully facially uh, closed, uh, which is fine for a spoons because, as I you know, mentioned, most people are. So <laughs> you fit right I, in. <laughs> I blended in. <clears throat> I did. I did. Um, he came in and was, again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, he he was one of my strongest allies throughout this too. So he appeared, um, kind of ushered me away, and we got pissed, um, which was a mechanism, you know, it's a former military yep. mechanism for dealing with good and bad, and it worked for that moment in time. Um, then going forward, I remember speaking to my father, who was living in Australia, and, and telling him he's he's he was suffering with prostate cancer. Um, it's called oligometastic, so it it already spread outside of the prostate and was. And it eventually killed him, unfortunately. But uh, he, we had a lot longer with him than we'd expected because of the drugs and the trials and just him being him, really. But I, I, there was already that that link. I'd already experienced somebody going through chemotherapy and pain and suffering and, and the mental anguish of it all. Although he never tried to share that with us, I could still see it. Mm. Uh, and I just embarked on that journey, I think. So I, that day I'd started on that journey that I know he went through. So straight away I rang him, told him the news, and within two days he'd flown over, which... He was a remarkable, remarkable man, and I miss him. Um, but again, he came and spent a month or so in the UK, um, just talking me through, taking me through the, the hurdles, telling me what to expect, what not to expect. His was transurethral surgery too, so he's un, you know he was under no illusion as to what was going on. Um, and yeah, so uh, people started to to work around me. Then they started to. To help. What did um talk to us about um, the professional side of life for for a split second? Because again, I'll have I'll have put it into the intro. But how how long were you in the navy for, and how long had you then been in the fire service for at this point? So yeah, I I, I most of my life I've been in uniform, one or the other. So uh, I joined the navy uh, twice. So initially joined at sixteen as a young. Uh, keen sailor uh lasted a year purely because i fell in love as we do um moved down to cornwall where i stayed with the young lady for a little while that didn't work so in 92 the choices were go one way at that crossroads in life if you know what i mean or join the military um so i had to join the military which is a good thing otherwise it would have perhaps gone a little bit awry so yeah i joined in 92 spent 15 years before the mast doing all sorts of stuff all around the world having fantastic time mostly um Three tours of, of so Sierra Leone, um, Bosnia, and Iraq, um, which were interesting. So, um, thank you. Yeah, it gives you a, a, more of a rounded. Pers- mm. No, no problem, no problem. Um, so yeah, I left that age thirty four um, and, and fell into this wonderful Why job. Did you leave? My, my boyhood dream. Um, I think because my. To be honest with you, it was because I'd come back from Iraq, totally honest, you know, on the record, that um, we weren't there to to help. I don't think we were there because of the oil. Um, so my um, I, my moral compass wouldn't allow that. You know, things we did and uh, perhaps were a little bit, we know now to be almost a war crime. So I wasn't putting my name to that anymore. Um, so, it's yeah, so horrible, I stepped away. Because uh, we have such incredible individuals, great moral compass, values, very well trained, very well driven. And it's a bit like having a parent who's lost their way and they've got a bunch of amazing, dedicated, loyal kids who will literally lay down their lives for that parent. And the parent has got themselves into a bad deal. and then, But the kid would know no different. You know what I mean? Because they're just so... You cut them in half and they are that person, their core family, country, whatever it might be. Yeah, I I, I, think I don't pretend to know. I've not. I've never served in the military, but a number of people that I speak to, and it reminds me as much as people will say, oh, Pete, that's a load of bullshit, that's a bit much. The old um, Mein Kampf books, when I used to read, I've read some of the Hitler stuff, and the soldiers always used to say, 
we're only following orders. And that was their way of trying to hold their moral compass together with with super glue and duct tape. It was like, well, I, I'm only following orders. And you're like, doesn't this feel wrong? Do go yeah, through the logic absolutely. trap in it, your head. You're like, oh, I'm struggling here. I'm struggling to stick with it because it's. But anyway, we're not going to yeah. go any further than that into the political minefield. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a it was a kill or be killed, wasn't it? You know, my grandfather, yeah. a wonderful human being. Again, he was Eighth <clears throat> Army in North Africa. He had to go. He spent four or five years out in that part of the world, that horrendous part of the world during the conflict. So, um, for me, I had that very real choice. You know, the, the options were. I'm not doing this anymore. And from a senior management, so I was a petty officer at the time, um, trying to keep the troops happy um, in, in the Middle East at that moment in time. And it, it was very difficult. We we were underfunded. The military had no money. We couldn't afford spare parts for the for the vessels we were on, essentially. So nothing was working. And it was a nightmare. So one of the reasons was, you know, not, not great. Morale was at an all-time low. They can't recruit currently. So it's a bit of a mess. But again, going down that, away from that political thing, um, hand of my notice in, yeah, I'd had enough. Um, I'd done the 15 years, as I said. I was, I had a young family. My wife was pregnant at the moment, so uh, it was the right thing to do. Uh, and it turned out it was the right thing to do. So um, I was really lucky that I got into this job. Um, started on January the 23rd, 2006. And I've loved it ever since, really. Uh, ups and downs, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the main... Why do you think yeah, so many people from the military job. are attracted to things like the fire service? Because I think we should actively recruit more out of the military, not like we're trying to steal good talent. But if people want to leave, it's a great place for them to go, I think. I think so. Yeah, I think it's a comfortable... It's almost a second military without being too militaristic, isn't it? It's still a uniform. We still... Again, as you said, I'm just being told what to do. And that's often the case with... I don't say... I think a lot of military are still quite bright, just perhaps misguided sometimes and mm-hmm. it's easier to be told what to do than it is to think isn't it sometimes mm-hmm. um and the fire service is that somebody tells you what to do on all levels really unless you're the chief and they're good they're conditioned um, so do you know what i mean they're they, <coughs> yeah. they, they're good problem solvers they get shit done do you know what i mean they're, uh, they're yeah. good at command and control um they're, they're very much a plug and play model you know it's rich point them in the right yeah, direction yeah i agree play and they get that value of being part of something that matters, which is the reason they joined the military at first. And maybe, again, different bodies, different careers. Some people in the military, as you kind of alluded to, some people will have lost, uh, there'll have been several filters put over what they think they're part of. Whereas in the fire and rescue service, in the, in the majority, you're right at the coalface. You can see the thing you do. And you do actually, you know, you live in the community or you know, you see the outcomes of the incidents and all this sort of stuff. It feels like you're doing a good thing, and you get all that camaraderie and everything like that. I think we should we should, we should recruit a lot Absolutely. more people in the military. But anyway, you decided to, to jump over yeah, to that. Yeah. 2006, started that career. So you've been six seven years in when you you had this yes. uh, new health challenge slash surprise slash fucking Titanic of <laughs> the ice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and when at age 40, I was still fairly new to the service. I hadn't experienced anybody who'd been ill in the service. So I had no idea what the process was to follow. Um, so, yeah, going back to, to the actual the process, I told my wife, um, told my family, my nearest family. My mum had passed at that stage. So uh, just my dad came over. He was my support. Um, I then had to see, obviously, speak to work and tell them that actually this is what it is. 
Um, might not be in on Monday. I had a boss at the time. I went to, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, or Tuesday. Or so, yeah, yeah, I had a really supportive watch as well. Um, I remember one of my colleagues burst into tears when I did. So I went in and said, look, fellas, you know, this is where we are at the minute. And they were all understandably a little bit shocked. And one of the guys just burst into tears. You know, it's lovely. Not lovely, but really supportive, you know. Yeah. Because exactly. we wear our heart on our sleeves, don't we? Um, so um, I have to say, in all honesty, the fire service, Hampshire and Isle of Wight Fire Rescue, have been fantastic. They really have been supportive across the piece. You know, I couldn't have asked for more. If I was a self-employed, I probably would have lost my house, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I've been on full pay throughout this process. Um, so going back to... So the process was, uh, I was waiting for a letter and then a phone call. And within two weeks of my initial diagnosis, I was in for surgery, which again, I'd never had. I was super nervous. I I remember being just mad, patient, very anxious, I think was on my notes. You know, I I just, uh, (laughs) bit of a control freak. And all of a sudden I was not in control at all. Yeah. Um, it had been taken completely from me. And, uh, I remember the surgeon, uh, and I'll mention him, Byron Walmsley, he was called, uh, was very rude, very arrogant, um, and a bit of a butcher, to be honest. So whether you've got to edit that out or not, I don't know. But uh, No, no, no. Well, so uh, the, person, the person that did the surgery on my chest, so I tore my whole right peck off my shoulder. Um, and, uh, uh, horrible, uh, stupid thing. Anyway, the doctor I had, I can't actually remember that name. But um, when I went in there, they were like, oh, you know, you lift lots of weights. You do this, you do that. They were, I'm saying this because they had a heavy South African accent. I can't do the accent. But yeah. um, they were like, right. yeah, this is bad for you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, 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 it is. What, what, what are we having a fucking lecture here? You know, tell, I know I, I've done wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Say, no, you're making me feel bad before I go th- for the thing. And I was like, I felt really awkward. And this was private healthcare. I was like, I felt mm. like I want someone different. But anyway, yeah. he did it. Don't think he did an amazing job. And mm. yeah, it still doesn't look right. I've still got a, a physical disfigurement in my chest. Um, and it doesn't work like right. it's supposed to. Anyway, yeah, right. that feeling where you're like, mm. oh, no, this person's going to be taking a blade to me in a couple of hours. They don't, don't yeah. think they like me. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely that. So I remember, as you know yourself, the process, certainly NHS-wise, is you... You have the healthcare assistant, all the bloods and the weights and all that stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the anaesthetist comes in and you've got to sign a bit of paper to say, actually, if I kill you, it's not my fault. Uh, again, isn't it weird, isn't it? Me. People won't know this. The anaesthetist is a totally different profession. They are like, they're like a private contractor. The doctor and the surgeon and all the nursing <laughs> team and the surgical team all do one thing. And the anaesthetist just comes in on their own. They weigh you in the morning, ask you a bunch of questions, sign some paperwork that says, I'm going to try not to kill you, but if you die this stuff is not a perfect science and you're like, okay. Yeah. And then yeah. they, they see you in the first yeah. little room and then you get put, you're not awake when you get pushed through to the next room, but weird. <laughs> really, really weird, really weird, really strange. Um, so I signed that bit of paper and then Byron Wormsley came in and he was a probably at the time, 60 year old, miserable, not happy with his job. And I'll always remember looking down, he had a pair of white wellies on, which he shouldn't have because he's, this is a level up from theatre, so he's actually up one floor, uh, <clears throat> honestly. Um, so urology, you have to wear wellies, just for the obvious squirts of water and fluids and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I remember looking at his wellies, and there were blood clots on it, and it was just inappropriately wrong and horrible. 
Um, and of course, I'm really nervous and I'm really unaware of what the future was and what, what the next step was. Never had a general anaesthetic and there was no hearts and minds from this guy. Didn't shake my hand. I offered my hand. Wasn't interested. No, oh, that's a whole yeah. different thing. You offered your hand and shake Absolutely. It. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm on dying <laughs> I now. I know. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so just a really surreal situation. I remember it only took two weeks and I'll allude I'll, I'll move on to that in a moment. But yeah, two weeks from start to finish, basically, for my first surgery. I went down, um, sharp scratch, back of the hand kind of thing, and then fell asleep, woke up, just, ah, oh, ah, in a, with a catheter in and all the other bits and pieces. And, and a dose of chemo had already been left in the bladder too. Really? Uh, after they removed us. Straight um, what into it. then transpired was that both the... Straight into it. Yeah, no holds barred. Um, is your wife picking you up? Yeah, yeah, good, good. So all that stuff. Um, and I remember waking up in just, ah, oh, Jesus, that really hurts, really is uncomfortable. Um, because the, the rigid cystoscopy, so the, the, the flexi one is the one that's that sort of thick. <clears throat> the rigid one is is thicker, and you ha- so they have to pass things through the tube. They put a, a straight tube straight into the bladder through your bits uh, and then insert all the different cameras and uh, oh, lasers wow. and all the other stuff to, to cut off the tumours. So um, they split... The end of me bits by a, a couple of mil as well, um, a couple of. Why don't they just even. make an? Um, oh no! Well. I was going to say, why don't they just make another hole? But the more holes you make, <coughs> the more damage you're going to do. You want to mess them out with the thing yeah. as little as possible. But exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, f- I know uh, women have to go through it. Similar, it's not similar, but they're like designed for yeah. it. You know, it's like this thing will stretch. <coughs> it might rip. Might get. Might yeah. be a bit damaged. It will kind of reform. We, I suppose, maybe we're yeah, just soft yeah, as hell. I don't know. Maybe we're just being pussy, so I don't know. That's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, mate. And I, you know, I can't black cat a, a pregnancy. I've been there for childbirth, and, and you know, it's oh, much mate. more intense than yeah. I had probably. <clears throat> but I've had man flu, and that doesn't compare to anything. Exactly. So, so um, you know, it's on a par. Let's not point fingers, girls. Pregnancy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that was. You know, I woke up and then I, I sort of said, so what's happened? What, what procedures have happened? And both the anaesthetist and the doctor, Wormsley, had buggered off. So nobody knew. And I'm thinking, you know, did they get it all? Is it straight away thinking, oh, my God, what's happening now? No, no aftercare, which was really upsetting, to be honest. Uh, for my first experience, it got much better because I had a voice. And I have to advocate that we need to tell our surgeons, our medical people, what we want. It isn't the other way around. We tell them what we require. They work, for, you know, they work to serve almost the same as we work to serve. Mm. Um, so sometimes that, that God complex has to be beaten out of them. <clears throat> so um, I remember my first pee. So I've woken up, they give you a piece of toast, as you know, you sit in a little ante room, you wake up, oh, here we go, Dro- groggy and horrible. My wife was waiting for me. It's about six o'clock at night now. Um, and I had to go for my first pee and my wife was allowed in for this process and you have to provide urine before you can go, obviously. We have to wee and poo, don't you, usually, um, to make sure everything yeah, works. Yeah. yeah. We have to see you do both. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I remember my wife was holding me on my back and I had both hands above the urine, the, you know, the trap, to go for a pee and, again, nearly fainted just by going for a pee. She had to hold me up because it was like, oh, my God, this is just outrageous. <laughs> trying to, oh, man. You know, trying to pee, pee in chemo as well, acid, nasty, cytotoxic, bloody horrible crap through your bits that they'd left in for an hour or two hours, whatever it was. So you're peeing that through already scarred, cut, ripped, open wounds all the way along the shaft of the urethra. And, uh, so that was an interesting pee. 
And I bet barely um, anything came yeah, out so, anyway. <laughs> you know, a little dribble of claret and a clot. I think, Most of it went on my legs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should have kept it. A uh, <laughs> little trophy. <laughs> so um, I remember my wife couldn't be any better. So basically shuffled me into the car. I went home uh, and that recovery process started essentially just um, a long process. And then six weeks later, back in for a checkup to see what was what under general anaesthetic again, where they found even more bloody tumour growth. And uh, that was the cycle of events for about, so I've had 19, uh, no, I haven't, I've had 30 plus surgery, I think 32 general anaesthetics over the 12 years. Whoa. um, Of which, yeah, so, um, yeah, um, I'm much more adept at it now. It's fascinating. The whole machine, as you know, the machine of the NHS is just incredible. When it works beautifully, it works phenomenally, doesn't it? Yeah. From from initial walk-in, you know, when you check in with a, a QR code now, all the way to the place you've got to go, level four at QA for me in Portsmouth, um, go into the urology part, they, they do what they've got to do, and then the machine works, it kicks in, um, you go through those double doors, they give you a pillow. I don't know if you've been in a similar situation, but you've got to take your own pillow down. Um, no, I don't think I've been No, they literally, here you go, carry that, carry that in a little blanket, and you walk through it, through the doors where you're in the, the motorway part of the hospital, the bit that nobody else gets to see. Uh, and then you walk down to your theatre because there's no need to push you. You know, you can walk still. Yeah. So you walk past all these devices, saws, axes, bloody brutal-looking bits of kit because there are 18 or 20 different, um, um, what do they call them, operating theatres. And yeah. you're walking past lots of different ones. I remember, oh, wow. really wrong probably, but <clears throat> I was walking down with one of the ODPs, operating department practitioners, who, whose role is to assist in theatre. They come and collect you. So walking past, um, and I remember uh, somebody clearly died somewhere, and they were wheeling the body past me on the opposite lane. It's all covered up in green, but obviously down to the mortuary in the in the back part that we don't get to see. And I remember looking at the ODP saying, that's not from my theatre, is it? And then she just <laughs> gave me a scornful look. <laughs> that's not number 17's theatre. <laughs> I ain't going in there. Um, which, yes, yeah, Isn't it crazy, bizarre. though? Who was, I, who was I speaking to <laughs> yesterday? Was it yesterday? I had someone on the podcast. And we were talking about how this is this is someone's every day. Like when they're making decisions, when the doctors are sitting down giving this news. And again, there's no excuse for rudeness, but it would... We spoke about conditioning earlier for the military and conditioning. In, in any profession, you get a mm. conditioning, don't you? And this stuff is yeah. every day for you. When someone says, oh, oh we, we'll get him in in uh, two weeks. Yeah, we'll have Robbie in in two weeks. Yeah, let him know. <laughs> That's it. Just next. Yeah. The next one was our oh, next one's uh, brain tumor. Okay, yeah, it's a ten-year-old girl. Whatever. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's, yeah. What, let's, let's get her in on Thursday. Let's try. And... Quick chat. Meet her mum and dad. Blah blah. And then that person, that doctor, she might go home to her. You know, she's got to go and get little Johnny from football later. And that's just the yeah. way. Her, switch off. Just had to tell Robbie. Robbie, there's, that's the last <laughs> surgery we can really do, mate. We haven't got any more answers here. Wow. Yeah. What a yeah. mental roller coaster it must be for them as well. And I say that just to give respect. Oh. I really want to have a surgeon on the podcast, you know. If I'd have had a doctor on before, we yeah. should have more people like that on. Yeah. I think they're fascinating as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I was probably a bit deprecating to uh, Byron Wormsley. He had probably just told, maybe potentially, as you've just said, he may have told somebody that it was the end of the game. <clears throat> so you never know. You have yeah. to be cold. But anyway. No, you don't. 
so yeah, I mean, there's a certain way of dealing with stuff, and we all deal with things differently. So he he dealt with his processing differently, mm-hmm. I suspect. Um, but you're right, fascinating, an, an amazing group of people. And in mm-hmm. theatre itself, you lie down on the on the on the couch, the, on the the gurney again, and everybody is just magical. You know, they they do wonderful things. Everybody's talking to you, engaging with you, letting you know. And because I'm quite understanding now, and I've, I'm, I like to find out exactly what the process is, I know what's next now. Um, so when they come in, I, I, I learned actually that the propofol, the white stuff that Michael Jackson was addicted to, um, mm-hmm. is an alkali, quite a high alkali, and it burns in some respects. And it does to me. So only for three or four seconds do you fall asleep. But that three or four seconds is quite uncomfortable. So you can have a lignocaine, which is uh, like a, a magic, they call it gin and tonic in the in the in the game <clears throat> here's your gin and tonic mr burns like, oh yes that's a champion so <laughs> out of all this darkness of surgeries i always ask for a little bit because it's absolutely magic that three or four seconds of this gear whatever it is pro- yeah. uh, before the propofol goes in is just oh yeah worth it almost <laughs> just, for this, just for that little magic <laughs> so yeah um, so I, six, I, six no, weeks later, addict. you, uh, you oh, I am a record yes, addict, so I have to be so careful with stuff like that. I would, I'd, I'd, I'd be writing yeah. that down and googling it after our conversation. The old version. Of <laughs> um, yeah. Me too. <laughs> anyway, six weeks later, six weeks later, you, you, you so, yeah. come back uh, optimistic to hear yeah. that things are going in the right direction, and I'm met with your first set of or second set, I suppose, of uh, disappointing updates. Today's podcast is powered by our partner Lifelines and their revolutionary approach to functional hydration. Just like in firefighting, water is essential for body function, but studies show more than 80% of firefighters are dehydrated. A 25-year study findings from the National Institute of Health showed poor hydration to be linked to early aging and chronic disease and even mild dehydration, results in significant negative impact outcomes including headaches, exhaustion, rapid pulse, irritability and poor cognitive function. A study conducted by Yale University showed that participants who were just 1% dehydrated had a 12% increase in errors when performing tasks that required cognitive flexibility. In addition, dehydration is shown to worsen mood and attitude, contribute to confusion and poor decision making, and negatively affect memory and judgment. In other words, you really don't want your internet commander, firefighter, or for that matter any first responder on a critical scene to be even slightly dehydrated. Mild dehydration occurs when a person is just 1.5% dehydrated, a condition that does not even trigger the thirst response in most people so just imagine how quickly a firefighter or any first responder can and does become dehydrated in their day-to-day duties which is why i address my hydration first thing every day with lifelines go into the notes for this episode and specifically check out lifelines hydro fuel and hydro og by clicking in the notes for the podcast for a clean energy solution designed for those who demand more from their day now back to the show Absolutely. Yeah. So it was literally that. Um, we, I woke up and a guy called Stuart Hall, he's a fantastic surgeon, in complete contrast to my first procedure. Stuart Hall's former RAF wing commander who uh, came across to urology. He was a urologist in, in the RAF, but he then left that service, joined the NHS, obviously, and it's just a, a different gravy, really, different level of human being. Fantastic. You know, mm. call me Stuart. So straight away, you know, it's not Mr. Wormsley or Doctor or what. It was call me Stuart. This is where we sit. This is what we're at. You're young. But I have to say, throughout the, the 30 surgeries, everybody, I would say every surgeon is like, you're very young for this, which leads me on in a little while. Um, so the procedure six weeks later was rubbish. Uh, it had come back. And then another one about six weeks later was the same. Not massive growth, but growth. Is that best. another up the urethra um, look? Or is 
a different sort of scan. Yeah. No, same thing. Um, so it was the they? full under general anaesthesia. Mm. You're like a flaccid balloon. So it takes six weeks now. to recover. You must have. That's a busy old motorway you've got in your body. That is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a windsock. Yeah, it's a windsock. It's a it windsock. Is. It whistles when I walk and everything now. <laughs> <laughs> it comes to attention. So, yeah. Um, for a period of time, it was it was grim. They uh, Six weeks, there was another growth. Six weeks, there was another growth. So they made the decision at MDT, which is a multidisciplinary team. So that's all the all the professionals of every level within oncology, urology, anesthesia, uh, come together in a meeting once a week and they discuss all the patients that they're going to see or have seen. Uh, and MDT came out to say that I needed six weeks of uh, chemotherapy as soon as possible, uh, a drug called mitomycin, which was uh, intravesical, which means it goes into the bladder, stays in the bladder, essentially. Um, so that was the course of of next step why because like. these these were the growths were just too small for surgical intervention or it was like oh no ah, they were removed problem. every time so they were okay, removed sorry. but they they kept coming back so uh, bladder cancer is the most recurrent literally the most recurrent disease of all cancers uh, and the most expensive because of that recurrence so um, it just kept appearing again produced from the kidney comes down into the bladder attaches to the bladder and there we go again so um, they thought they would try and hit it pretty hard so they got this six-week process once a week i'd go back to hospital have chemotherapy uh into the bladder and then and try and nail it that way happy days did that for six weeks um i was clear for about i think three or four more checkups every six weeks again under general anesthetic how was chemo uh, and then the bugger came back uh grim <laughs> to be okay. fair seems to be uh, the it, yeah. uh, the main reviews it gets that is yeah, pr- pretty negative uh, in all respects. It, it's painful. It's uncomfortable. It, it it's knackered my hips. To be honest, I mean, I'm still here. My eyesight is very bad now. Uh, my teeth. So it is all all round grim. Um, has a massive what effect. Does it do so to the you? surgeries. So I I I I've googled um, it and I've had a look at it. But people that they hear someone's going through chemo, what is it doing? Well, this particular mitomycin uh, is a almost a topical fluid. It goes into where the bladder is. So it doesn't go intravenously. It's not in the vein. It's into the bladder through the urethra, through a catheter, essentially. So that's why you haven't um, lost all your hair. Um, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah, exactly that. So it's, it's targeted. Um, so this kind of melts and boils and burns away any of the tumour and any of the cells. So it takes all the mucosa, uh, mucosa the, the, yeah. the manky stuff on the on the bladder wall. Um, it takes everything else with so it, it as well, I bet. kind of... Absolutely, your dignity, your yeah, your sex drive, all those things, everything that a man wants at the age of forty, yeah. um, was taken really, um, stolen. Um, so yeah, it was a long process then of every six weeks going back in to find more shitty news and oh my god, what you know, what's 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 happening here? And then I remember another guy, um, one of the doctors I'd seen because Stuart was off or whatever. I saw another surgeon. Uh, and he said, oh, Mr. Burns, you're not out of the woods yet, are you? And I'm thinking, thank you for that. That's very kind. Um, what do you mean by that? Straight away was the answer. Well, you're not out of the woods. You know, this is still a very progressive illness, very progressive disease that you have. And da 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 So I was kind of coming to terms with this might be every six weeks and I can live with that. Hopefully I'll live. Um, but then he kind of said we need to uh, be a bit more invasive. So after about, I think... 20 something surgeries uh, at QA in Portsmouth I was put on um, I was given a heads up that the 
the best urology hospital in the country is Guy's and St. Thomas in London. So I went through the process, obviously wrote to them and said, this is where I sit. I'm really keen to get a thing called a blue light cystoscopy. Uh, and the blue light is a is on the ultraviolet scale. It's not ultraviolet, but it sits amongst that color spectrum, if you like. Um, and the blue light is where they insert a dye into the bladder. Then the blue light cystoscopy goes in and it looks for cancers that are very young, essentially, that can be blatted at an earlier stage um, and for any other. So mine was a... Um, wasn't a thing called a cancer in situ. Mine was just a, a, a tumour growth or is a tumour growth on the bladder wall, which is less invasive than the CIS, but still uh, needs needs jobbing. So, Was there any um, conversation about just from, taking your whole bladder out? Yes, <clears throat> there was. How early on was that? Because, yeah, it's like, um, uh, it's kind of the whole, oh, in fact, I've just remembered, a gentleman we had on the other day, firefighter with one leg. So he had a tragic injury and uh, lots and lots of surgery, spinal surgery, blah, blah, blah. And the last thing that was causing him issues was his ankle. And they wanted to keep trying to fix the ankle. And he eventually opted to have his leg amputated. Jesus. Um, Jesus. Which is a fucking, that's a strange solution. But it just made me, I was connecting the dots from our conversation here. And it made me think like, yeah, what point is it like, lose the limb, get rid of my bladder. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a bit like keeping hold of a business thinking you can make it get going again. And then all of a sudden it makes you you lose your house or it makes the other business bankrupt or it yeah. spreads to the rest of the body. You're like, lose the limb. I, d- I don't know. Maybe yeah, that's and that's a really good analogy. Um, I, I don't know. Um, no, that was really you, good. You'd had, because after, after three or four surgeries, you'd maybe I'd maybe be thinking, is there a... Yeah let's stop this at the door solution. Yeah. But I know... And that was the conversations I had. It's a very... It's not an easy decision. It's not like... You haven't got another one like you have your leg and it's hard to put in a replacement bladder. No. <clears throat> exactly. And there are no transport opportunities, no transplant um, transport yeah. transplant uh, options for that. So um, it is what it is. At that time, I remember after probably 10 surgeries, something like that, I spoke with the professionals and said, what's the drill you know i'm bored of this now and uh, as you said i'm worried about disease spread they found a tumor up in my left ureter which is the attachment tube to the kidney uh which is very close to the kidney obviously and i'm thinking i don't want it going any more north really to the kidney because kidney is an index that's that's you um so that was a conversation a very robust conversation i have to say and it was i want it out really can you do that he said, yeah, yeah, absolutely, we can do that, but it would involve a da Vinci machine, which is a, a robotic, fantastic bit of kit, but a robotic, and about an eight-hour procedure to remove the bladder. So quite an invasive surgery. And then uh, a robotic his, his bladder. His words to that were, it's... Is that, sorry? No, a robotic saying. surgery, sorry. So it's... All right, okay. And a da Vinci robotic surgery. Um, so I'd asked for that. They kind of MDT'd it. They went up back up to the top table, I suppose, I spoke about it and then came back to say that it would be like using a sledgehammer to, crash, to, to crack a nut at that stage. It was still, it was, it was a grade two tumour of three grades and it was a T1 of four. So it was still a T1, which is great, but it was mm-hmm. the grade. So the, the, the grade is different to the severity. The, the yeah. severity is the depth it went through the bladder wall, essentially. So whilst <laughs> it's really annoying for you, it's actually working. We can just keep sweeping the water away from the front door. We haven't got to build a 10-foot yeah. flood barricade. You know what I mean? It's like what yeah. we're doing is working. Yep. We're just going to keep pushing it back. 
I know it's annoying for you. Exactly. You create a great lifestyle, but you are still physically fully mobile. The surgeries we're doing isn't killing you. Yeah. So we're just going to keep doing this. Yeah, and exactly that. Um, they kept plugging away, plugging away, uh, and it, it worked to a degree. It's the QA hospital down in Portsmouth doesn't have the same urological, um, I suppose, um, doctrine as, as as guys does and capabilities okay. and funding because a, a, a central, you know, a metropolitan hospital will always get funded because it's a vote winner, unfortunately, yep. but it is what it is. <clears throat> so I, again, I lost to and fro in with my GP. Yeah, it is. I chose, and I have to advocate to anybody who might be listening to this, you can choose where you have your treatment. So Google across the board, across the country, if you're willing to travel, there are places you can go um, that are excellent, have a degree of excellence That's in their That's what title. Josh so, said the other day. You can transfer your funding or something like that. I forget what the process exactly. he had to go through. And he's like, yeah, you just port your funding from one uh, NHS fund to another. I don't, I, I'm, I'm butchering that. I'm sure yeah. I'm so wrong. But anyway, I was. I was no, like, no, 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 no. No, you could do that. <clears throat> you can, subject to their agreement, obviously, and the, and the, all the protocols being. Isn't that a bit like turning your back you on your local pub, though? And then the next time you need to go back down there, they're like, "Yeah, fuck you, Robbie. You know, you, you didn't think we were very good last time, well, did you?" <laughs> one of the G- exactly one of the one of the doctors had to go back for something different is about my prostate and I'll, um that's another saga for another day but um i went back and saw one of the urologists who saw me previously when i was under their care and he and he literally said oh i see you've um you've left us oh yeah i have uh he was fine uh but you could you could sense it was that uh elephant in the room you know a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> how <clears throat> broad shoulders yeah. so um, going to guys, uh, I remember fantastic again, fantastic surgeries and fantastic processes. I've had probably a dozen surgeries up with them, something like that anyway. Um, but the, literally the night before they put you up in a lovely little room so you can go out and have a couple of beers. You shouldn't, and I don't advocate that, but you can pop out into a central London pub and have a couple of scoops yeah. um, ready for the 0700 start, which is what I did on every occasion, to be fair. So you're in 0700, ready to go. Um, they again did the blue light cystoscopy. Uh, found some more growth on a number of occasions, scooped them out, and then went to a thing called uh, EMDR. So this is the preamble to a bladder removal, essentially. Okay. Um, they went EMDR chemotherapy. So EMDR is uh, iontophoresis, essentially. They put some sponges on the outside of the bladder wall, just above the mm. penis into the, the pelvic area. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they insert a catheter into the John Thomas, which is an electrode. Um, then they put in... No, Wind back a bit. They put the mitomycin into the bladder through uh, a catheter. And I remember, I'll always recall, the lady who did it comes in, because it's so very cytotoxic, she comes in in goggles, bloody gloves down to here, you know, proper gauntlets, a full leather, you know, the full suite of PPE that you would expect for a full hazmat. Um, and I'm thinking, <clears throat> that's going in my cock. <laughs> you know there's no <clears throat> i've got a bit of tissue wrapped around me john thomas and she's now coming in with this in frankenstein kind of um which was quite phenomenal to be honest so um i've laid down she's come across put the catheter in put the fluid in and then I'm, again i'm used to it now so it was kind of uncomfortable more than painful and then they put this device on oh my god they put this sponge thing they put gel on then they put the sponge onto the outside of the bladder wall then they put the catheter in and then they turn the machine on ah so the machine creates heat essentially what it's doing is creating heat and iontophoresis which makes the bladder wall bleed uh, which is good 
it's not good, but it's good in that the bladder oh, wall's yeah. bleeding, therefore is absorbing. Yeah, it's burning. It's a really, really odd sensation having your bladder heated from inside. Why do you feel awake <coughs> Well, it's cheaper, I suspect. Yeah, um, less, less risk as well. You die it's an older well. person's. Yeah, and it's an older person's disease, and they're you know older people as we know are, are, are greater risk of surgeries. So. Yeah. It was that. Um, and I, my understanding was that each catheter was £1,000 and then the, the jungle juice they put in was at least another £1,000 and all the pros. So it's about three grand a pop just for the chemo, one day, one session. Wow. Uh, I had 12 of those. Yeah, so my surgeries have probably cost in the region of £500,000, I would suspect. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, so this EMDR oh, um, process... We're, we're, we're so, so easy for so us to... <clears throat> get upset about having to go through this stuff but equally 10 20 years ago you know i was going to said this to josh the other day when he because he was in a he was deemed paralyzed when he was took into hospital because of the the way he, his mm. injury happened the way the incident happened um you know 10 15 20 years ago 10 years ago that was it that was it we ain't got an answer yeah. for you we could put a big horrible skeletal thing on but you know, they say they have the audacity and the wonderful audacity to say to you now, you're very young for this, Mr. Burns. People used to die in their late 40s. I mean, people obviously still do, but yeah. it was old. Yeah. You know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. When you see yeah, what we're true. doing now, yeah, imagine what our children, our, our children oh. are probably going to, I bet most of our kids, if, unless they have like a, they get addicted to something bad or whatever, they'll probably all live till they're 100. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, octogenarians for sure. Everybody would be, oct- be 80 across the board. You know, that will yeah, be the norm, won't it? Absolutely. Man, <coughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. Pro- so yeah. lucky to be able to have that pro- sort of support. And again, it was just blind luck that we were both born in, in the UK. Could have been born in you know, yeah. North Korea, for God's sake. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've travelled extensively. I'm sure you have. But I, in a military capacity, not to the nicest of places, I have to say. Mm. Um, Sierra Leone, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Just ravaged um again you know if i was born there i would have died probably anyway of something else a comorbidity yes. but certainly i wouldn't have had any treatment for this um mm. therefore the grace of whoever not i'd probably die of stupidity i'd be shot by the local tribe for not keeping my mouth shut <laughs> but uh anyway yeah, we digress absolutely. so take us um take yeah. us to warm bleeding bladder Yes. So, um, again, I'd taken public transport. I took the uh, National Express. I love the song. Of you did. Um, but, yeah, I took the National... Yeah. So, <laughs> two hours and a bit to get me into London and then across town into Guy's where I'd had the Jungle Juice and then the coach back, which is the norm. Bit of Karen Carpenter in my ears, you know, listening to something quite chilled whilst I'm having this process Doesn't that, make, doesn't that, that so this, yeah, that's amazing, though. Sorry, like, you know when you're travelling yeah. on a train and stuff and you think, where are these people going? You you probably you might be sat next to someone that has a terminal illness and is going for some horrific. Absolutely, I, mean, I just I like I'm I'm sure I'm just a freak, but when I like think about that, I'm just nah. like, God. Everyone is on a whole different, but you've got no idea Absolutely. what people are going through. Uh, literally, got no idea. Literally, yeah. So people aren't going on holidays often when they're on the train or on the coach, or it's you know we've all got that different thing going on. Uh, yeah. which is yeah quite bizarre i remember really kicking off one of the dickheads on the on the bus decided he was gonna have a cigarette on the back you know the usual heavily yeah. tattooed probably unemployed kind of individual and i remember losing my shit with him and saying you know what the, what are you doing and he's like what's yeah. it to you and I, I just opened a kind of whoop ass and said well actually you know i'm just recovering from chemotherapy dick 
um, he put it out. But anyway, so this this process of uh, iontophoresis uh, lasts half an hour, and the last five minutes they ramp it up to whatever voltage or whatever amps or ohms or whatever the, the, the stuff <laughs> just is. Good it gas. Let's just open it up. Let's see what yeah. let's see what this one's got in it, Robbie. Just, just going to open up the gas on this bad exactly. boy. You don't mind if I just take it for a ride, do you? Because they <laughs> never usually let us do this. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna open up the gas. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Bizarre, bizarre. So she was lovely, a le- beautiful lady called Suzanne Amory. So she's the she's the, the charge. Always makes there. it worse Sue when Amory they're really beautiful, the doesn't it? You're like, God, <laughs> I wish I'd have met you somewhere else. Because my life's in tatters yeah. at the minute. And- You're absolutely breathtakingly attractive. <laughs> yeah, and she, and she's touching me in my genitalia, which is not. It's got a, an unhappy face on it. You know, it's got yeah. an upside down smile on, and it's it doesn't want to play, so it's gone back inside. It's gone <laughs> in. Oh, oh, yeah, I, exactly. I kept saying it's cold. It is cold in here, love. Um, so <laughs> she, I think it's quite warm, Mister Burns. No, it's it's cold. It's really bloody cold. <laughs> coldest coldest I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> So um, she's introduced the catheter, done all the bits. Again, fully cytotoxic taps, fully, fully in this magical chemical, uh, you know, um, clothing. Puts it in and you can feel it going in and it's just, yeah. And then they turn, as I said, the last five minutes, they, they turn the revs up essentially and it just becomes incredibly hot. Just, whoa, what the fuck is that? You know, wow, yeah. wow. Um, so every five minutes she asks you the question, everything okay? And she writes in the document, five minutes tolerated, five minutes tolerated, all the way through the process. Um, and then that started a cycle of 12 monthly cycles of this mitomycin. So every it takes a month, it takes three and a bit weeks to get over the first process because it just rips your bladder to bits. You know, it, it does what it says on the tin. Um, and then you go back in for another session and then you get another. And, another. Um, and I remember it's, you know, the, oh, yeah, for a couple of weeks after that, just going to pee. You, you don't want to drink almost because you know the outcome of getting rid of that fluid is going to be... Yeah proper overwhelming and and you've got to sit down because you fall over it is that kind of you wouldn't wow. be able to stand up and pee because it just you 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 wouldn't tolerate pee and stood up so there are lots of and i have to say that you know people out there have a lot worse going on than, than me um so this is just my journey essentially and and i'm fully understanding that lots of people really struggle uh, mm. and i'm still here so therefore talk it's, to me about success. those around you we, we, we've, we've covered a, a, a bit of a time span here and i'm conscious that we didn't address your children at any point uh and again free yes discuss their life is their life it's not for no, us to no. inherently discuss their life but it, i think it's important to share with people if you're able to what that process because again you said they're five and seven and 17 i think you said um yeah. five and nine yeah sorry maybe. yeah um it's five and seven five and seven and 17 five, five, you're right five, <clears throat> what did you tell them what <sighs> did you think you needed how did you navigate that bit? yeah um uh, very difficult very very difficult probably not the hardest process i could deal with what i had to deal with certainly i just got on with it and i i've got in fact, I've got a camera on Friday of this week. I can't wait. I'm back to London on Friday um, to see um, where we are because I had another regrowth in January of last year, which has been taken out. And so I'm back on that roller coaster, unfortunately. However, uh, my kids are dealing with it differently because they see it for what it is now. They understand. But in its inception, I had to ring my 17-year-old son, who was very vulnerable. Um, he just recently snapped his own ACL, uh, which then went down a, its own rabbit hole of seven surgeries and it's knackered his knee. So he was in a dark place anyway. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I snapped my patella tendon so last him. year, and I was in um I was in a wheelchair for a bit and doing all the rehab. So again, it's not cancer, and you can recover from it. But for someone like him, at the, at the you know the peak, not the peak, even you know just ascending the peak of his physical fitness to get an injury like that, um, horrible Absolutely. for him. Horrible for him, not able to do so many yeah, absolutely. friends and perhaps any plans that you had for himself at that time, or even for his life. He could still probably do some of them, but like I say, a couple of surgeries after maybe um maybe feels like he's had things stolen from him as well. Totally, totally. So he was on to join the Royal Marines. He was that was his trajectory oh. essentially. Uh, uh he was playing cricket for county, so he's playing Gloucestershire cricket at the time as well. So all of that was just whipped from under him. So to compound that, it was, by the way, Sam, um, unfortunately, I have this diagnosis and I'm unsure what the future is and I'm unsure, you know, I'm trying to be as strong as possible, but realistic. I believe in black and white. I don't have any of this pink and fluffy nonsense. Um, this is what it is. This is the process. Come and have a look at this is the process. You know, if I'm miserable, grumpy or whatever, this is because I've had this done and I'll, I'll, I'll put a video up, you know, watch. This is a cystoscopy. This is what's going to happen to me next week. And it hurts. So, it was very real, very visceral for him. Um, so in isolation, the, the seven and five-year-old, it was kind of sitting down. And I'll always remember Thomas, my youngest, saying, Daddy, and I was like, what, mate? He said, have you got cancer? And I was like, I have, mate. And he, again, just burst into tears, you know, just overwhelmed oh. by it all. Um, but, of course, that leads into having to inform friends, family of my kids, schools um the whole process of letting every teacher that comes across my kids know that actually they may be struggling at home because i'm struggling at home and my wife may be struggling um so it's not just not just me obviously it affected it was a, a raft of others uh notwithstanding i had to try as best i could in my own dark space to to try and manage um i suppose expectation mm-hmm. um what they thought i'm trying to be you know i'm not going to die of this this isn't going to kill me um, and I didn't know that was the case. You know, I was lying essentially, but trying to manage that is very, very difficult and, and overwhelming. Um, and, and trying, you know, my wife was brilliant. She picked that up and, and ran with that and tried to manage as best as possible. But it is, yeah, a dark place for sure. Um, How much um, you yeah. said yeah, early on in our conversation that uh, you hadn't made any preparations for this sort of thing. Did you make any preparations? Hmm. Did you do any of the. Absolutely, yeah. What, so a will was written. Um, what very does life afterwards. look like if I'm not here? What does life look like financially? Yeah. What uh, I had a girl, a lady called <laughs> Helen, on the podcast a few years ago. In the first year of the podcast, I travelled to come and sit with her, and I'd love, I'd love for us to meet. I know we've tried right. a few times for this. I know we will meet each other, um, but um, she had yeah. stage four yeah, bone cancer. Sure. She was an RAF nurse, stage four bone cancer. She had right. two sets of twins, girls. Um, I know Helen. I know Helen. I know Helen. She's do Scottish. you really? Yes. I absolutely wow. do. She's in my friends. Yeah, I've met. I've known her many times. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. She did on the that? podcast like three years ago. Oh, I didn't know that. So I, uh, wow. I went to her home, met her partner, who was also PTI uh, in the military and RAF. Yeah, RAF. Sorry. Yeah, uh, met the dogs, met the children. Um, we had a very long conversation together because this was one of her next goals around leaving things for her children to remember her by and she said you know i'd love for them to have something they could listen to if uh the yeah. worst came to a, a bloody horrible. it was a wonderful conversation but the hardest conversation i think i would probably ever had 
It wasn't even me going through it. I almost feel yeah. like I feel like I don't mm. even I've not even got the right to say that conversation was difficult for me. But anyway, oh, it's so crazy you've met Helen. What an amazing woman. She um mm. she was part of the yes, uh, yeah. teams that brought injured people back from um war zones and i think she she brought back yes. mark ormrod who people might know was the first triple amputee i know mark legend former royal marine mark i speak to there you go uh, it's God. a small world you wouldn't want to paint it though would you anyway helen no no um, wow helen's amazing wow incredible woman um, but that's that, that just made me think yeah. for a second, but only because she was she was writing um, letters for her girls when they were eighteen for their for their wedding day and a few other things. Um, yeah. How much of that yeah. were you like? I don't want to do this because <coughs> I'm hoping it's going to be all right. But what if it's not all right? And I don't want to do it in a rush. And I don't even know if I have the mental yeah. capacity to do it. If I get to a place where I'm in so much pain, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I. Um... I did all of the, the grown-up stuff, I suppose. I didn't write notes to my kids. I probably should have, maybe, but I didn't. Um, I Luckily, I didn't need to as it transpires. But uh, I did all the grown-up stuff. I had a will done very soon. Um, I sorted out, all, because I do the finance. I, you know, I have the bank accounts details and all the bills and all the all the dross. Uh, and my wife cracks on and goes to work. So she was blissfully unaware of what was going on. There's no drama, but, you know blissfully unaware of of the intricacies of changing your gas supplier and you know all the other nonsense so i recall sharing all of the info this is our insurance this is our house insurance this is our home insurance this is our car insurance you know all of the the relevant stuff just in case i'm not here uh, and she's like oh don't be so ridiculous you know the usual don't be so bloody but it's very real you have to you have to show where x is where y is how you turn the gas off how you turn the water off you know, this is how I do this. Come and see how I fix the boiler, how I reset this, or whatever it looks like. Yeah, you know, I showed her how to take the battery out of a key yesterday, just because. You know, you never know. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. It, do you know process, where the water stop cock is for the house? Mm. If suddenly mm. the water starts pissing out upstairs, do you know how to switch it off? This is the thing I did with my wife the other day because it's just a yeah. thing you yeah. never think to talk about, and most. Most people, most kids, you know, when you go to, you know, you go to a flood in in a high rise or something like that, most kids haven't got a clue. They just don't know this stuff. No one's no. teaching them anymore. And then those no. people become adults and, and it's just random, yeah. random stuff. But um, yeah, we do. We yeah. have the blue jobs and the paint jobs or the his and hers or the whatever. Everyone <coughs> has their thing. The person yeah. probably thinking about. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm still in the process of doing that. So straight away, I wrote to the pensions department when I was diagnosed and said, you know, what would be worst case scenario um, payout and how do I access that and who accesses that? And then I got onto the Fabregas Union again with the similar sort of process of who'd, who would need to be contacted in the event of. Uh, and it's very grown up. It's a very real conversation to have with somebody, an unexpected one at that age too. Um, but the right one. So everything is in place. I've got a file upstairs um, with everything and, and everywhere to go really. And that's been there for a little while. So yeah, it's um funny old world we live in. Mm. So take us take us beyond that. Take take us to where we are now. Um, you know where you find me today because we actually first got our conversation going through Simon. I think it was Simon, wasn't it? Simon Hunter. Yes, and, it was uh, Simon Hunter. How did yeah? So start connecting some dots for me between what you've been doing now because you've travelled across uh, around the UK. You've been speaking with a lot of services. You, you do a lot of awareness 
around uh, firefighter cancer as well. What's happening with your diagnosis yeah. now? How did this manifest right. into a desire to help other people um, talk about uh, the scars that it's left you with mentally, physically, all that sort of stuff? Right. So um, about two years ago, I was working at Gosport Fire Station as a crew manager on the run, um, having surveillance, essentially. And I was approached by my service, Hampshire Fire, or Hampshire and the Isle of Wight Fire, um, because I'd done some stuff with the Fire Brigade Union and the Daily Mail and Daily Mirror and the BBC, which, again, as you've said, uh, as an advocate, really, of checking your balls, mental health, physical health, mm-hmm. uh, firefighting uh, cancers, essentially, which uh, I'll lead on to in a moment. But uh, we now know that we are four times more likely to get a disease in our working life, up to 5.6 times, in fact. If, if you're at a job for more than four hours, for instance that increases to 5.6 times likelihood. So we know that. The World Health Organization knows that. The world knows that generally. Australasia, America, most states of Poland, everywhere other than UK, it would seem, have legislation for firefighter cancer. Uh, We have mesothelioma is the only recognized disease in the UK at the moment. Unacceptable and is changing. So I was asked, and I've spoken of that in Fabergate Union at a conference in in, uh, Brighton, etc., so where, where will service, we find the I documentation for that four hours, 5.6? Is that, do you have that so study? It, <clears throat> it's in, yeah, absolutely. So it's the UCLan University of Central Lancashire study. Uh, and it was done by Professor Anna Steck et al. and others. Yeah. So UCLan study, uh, and it's firefighter cancers, basically. It was a, an FBU funded study. Uh, oh, it's the FBU one. Pages, it? it's, right. Okay. Yeah, I've yeah. got that one. Um, I've got that one in front of me now. Uh, I wasn't sure which okay. presentation that's because I've been sent a lot of stuff from, um, you know, John Lord as well. Yes, yes, lovely. John, uh, John sent me so much stuff. John's uh, John's a wonderful bloke. Yeah, good for this. Yeah, so the FBU yeah, really is. contaminants. Uh, I've got the interim best practice guide, which we will share yes. for that for people. Um, but sorry, uh, carry on. Just so people know, because so, some of yeah. this will be brand new figures to some people. Um, the four-hour aspect, yeah, of course, certainly from a welfare <laughs> perspective, uh, is yeah. applied quite flexibly because of d- yeah. different justifications. But I don't think people overlayer this um, this factor onto it, so it's important to do so. But no, no, no. We need to be on board. We need to be on top of this from the top to our own decisions too. So we're lazy as firefighters generally. I'm a firefighter and I'm lazy as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're dynamically brilliant. On a fire ground, 150, 200% will be active out there. Fantastic. Back on a fire station, three in the morning, car fire, they're not going to shower. They're going to get back in the bed because that's the nature of the beast. That's what we do. We need to stop doing that. So two years ago, uh, I was asked by the service if I wanted to come in a represent the service on this growing um, topic of contaminants and firefighters, which initially I refused, actually, because of our high-rise process. I won't go down that politics route, rabbit hole. Um, But anyway, in the January of two years ago, uh, I felt that it was bigger than my personal agenda. This had to be something that had to be, you know, shouted from the rooftops. So I accepted the role. Um, and for now, two years, I've been advocating the best practice as much as possible, lots of research, um, and I've cost the service a fortune, I think. But um, basically, I, uh, as you said, I, I try and speak to people, shock people is what we need. We need that physical, this is actually what I did, because I didn't take the precautions, because to be fair, there weren't any precautions in place when I joined um, 
And again, it's it's no real fault, although dissertations were written in 2018 by individuals in my service uh, for master's degrees on firefighters' contaminants and the risks of that, uh, and no action was taken until two years ago. So we've known corporately about this risk. Sweden have been doing stuff for 15 years. You know, people have been doing stuff safe. Sweden and America seem to be a lot further ahead than we are with this stuff. And again, America certainly is obviously bigger and more funding. But like you say, once you have that information, you're now falling into, you know, negligence because you've been aware, you've been made aware of this and you're almost actively choosing not to do this. And I know you joke there and say, oh, I've cost my service a fortune. Well, it's, it's already been costing individuals far more than that. It's just a hidden cost. Absolutely. It's a personal cost. Absolutely. Dealt with in the confines yeah. of their, their family and their world. Yeah, absolutely that. So going back to cost, mine was probably two years of sickness on and off in the, in the last 12, um, which has cost the service my own costs as well as probably 100K. Um, and then the NHS cost is probably 500. So 600K of the public purse has been spent on me as an individual. Um, mm-hmm. So... Going back to what needs to be done, I now advocate, speak to services. I'm speaking in Manchester in March. I'm speaking in London um, this end of this month, actually. Uh, as many forums as I can get on, really, to, to advocate that we need to do things individually. We need to do things better. Uh, we need to wear nitrile gloves when we touch anything on a fire plant because it's never been cleaned. You know, everything on a truck is dirty. It's all been to a thatch. It's all been to a minging, filthy job. We need to treat it like it's covered in feces mm. because... It, this is worse than feces for you. You wouldn't you wouldn't touch it with no gloves if it was shite all over it. So we need to change our thought process. We need to do this as a cultural change, uh, individually, corporately too. Uh, I'm lucky. I've got the ear of the chief, the dep, uh, the assistant chief, and they do listen and they are acting really uh, positively as well as my boss. I'll give him a shout. Etienne, he's fantastic. He's really advocating this too. Apparently I'm a nightmare to manage, but hey-ho. Look at that. Um, my world. They're listening. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> probably, I'm not, probably not as costly is, as you, but yeah, I just need to do what I'm told more often, I think. But maybe well, not, sometimes know. though, no, no, absolutely not. No, This no, thing that we're not. talking on right now no. would have never been created if I'd have just fallen in line and kept doing the thing. And, I, and then stories like there yours, you I fear, never would have been told. And equally, you know, the yeah. fact that you've had to wrestle bend and manipulate um sometimes because some people don't want to sometimes it didn't fit their political narrative sometimes because it just wasn't affordable whatever but you you, yeah. you know you, you know we've had conversations before this the work you've had to put in the and and also the easiest thing for you to have done would just be like look i just can't need to focus on myself right now look i'm sorry i yeah. know i should be doing all this extra stuff but um it's broken me um I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but you, you you're choosing to no. do that. Um, when um, yeah, so you know it's it, taken so much from you already. It has, but it's also <clears throat> cathartic. I think um, I've, I like tattoos as well, so I've had a fair few of those done as part of my journey because they're linked. You know, they're um, they, it's a process of, of pain that I was controlling essentially. You mm-hmm. know, the stuff up here is, I'm sure you you know, it's most uncomfortable, and I choose to do that. So I've put myself in this arena because. I feel it's of greater benefit um, to others. People can listen or people can ignore, but ultimately we are dying young of a cancer that is preventable, certainly uh, manageable. So my diagnosis was, as I said earlier at the beginning of the piece, I ignored it. 
because I was 40, because I was fit. And ultimately, I had a raging disease inside of me that needed to be excised. Um, and because I was complacent, lack of knowledge, I suppose, as well, um, I ignored it. And it's now, the reason I ignored it has led me to another diagnosis, as I said a year ago, where I'm going back to London to, uh, on Friday to see if it's any further progression, etc. So I could have swerved that. The service could have swerved that nationally. Um, mm. They could have put things in place at a, an earlier time. That it's it's moving now at a rate of knots. I know that the contaminants piece is is going to change the whole the whole mm. landscape of the fire. So in five years' time, it will be a different job. Yeah, um, it's going to change change the whole job, isn't it? And it needs it to is. as well. We're it's going to be annoying and awkward yeah. to some people. Um, it's just because it's it's a long term saving. You know, in the in the documents and stuff like that, they talk about chronic. Uh, you know, chronic exposures and, and that aspect of it, because it's not like I always say to people, you know, you don't wear your harness, you fall off the roof. That is an immediate cost, massive cost, immediate yeah. ramification, closed loop. Don't yeah. do the thing, you get hurt right now. This is the stuff that creeps up on us over decades, you know, and then you pay the yeah. big irreversible yeah. cost then. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. And that's, that's an analogy I kind of use. You've got a safety officer if the chimney breast is loose at a job. You will have people all around. You'll have cordon tape. You'll have all sorts of things in place for that acute activity. Um, the chronic exposure thing, and I think mine was an acute exposure anyway, but the chronic overtime exposure of various chemicals of which there are about 300 produced in, in effluent, toxic effluent. Each one in isolation will try and kill you. So, you know, we know about this. We choose individually to perhaps ignore that things like touching a BA set without nitrile gloves and then going for a pee without mm. washing your hands nobody washes their hands before they pee do they no we have a mass massive testicular cancer problem within the fire sector because of that you know little things we touch our genitals because it's what we've always done without gloves we need to stop doing that um, PPE is available we need to wear PPE we don't more often than not Showers are available in most cases. We don't shower because we choose not to. We'll come back from a fire straight into the gym because we're already dirty. But we're opening up our pores. We've got a stinking, filthy, minging, BA-worn T-shirt underneath. Uh, we're going to go into the gym, open our pores, still wear that BA shirt that's gassing off into our pores. Yeah, it's from equipment to PPE to uniform to station layouts to it's really going to be a whole just a massive redesign of the whole entire environment, isn't it? But there has really? to be political appetite for it because this is incredibly costly stuff and we yeah. don't want it to come at the cost of just having to chop half of the personnel. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be funding. Home office funding is the next step. Um, I think legislation isn't far away. I hope um, this is this is the new asbestosis. This is absolutely the new asbestosis. So, we know about that. We are aware of the risks and we put all of those control measures in place. We need to do the same. We're going into buildings still without, I don't know if you have PPV, positive pressure ventilation, where you are. Mm -hmm. um, we we have it here. We don't use it very well. No, we don't use it because we've not trained properly on it. So I'm a TAC vent instructor, but um, we only use phase one in the service. That I'm <coughs> but post I'd like, yeah, post fire. Uh, and I, I would love for us to bring in, for, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, phase three is such a fantastic, but it requires a much more aggressive version of firefighting, an expedient searching progr progress process through the building and all this sort of stuff. And 
it relies on a, a higher level of reading the smoke, reading the fire, um, that yeah. I think uh, we train a lot of our commanders to do. Hence why we're scared to death of using phase three and just pushing fire into the roof voids and spreading through the buildings and all this sort of stuff. But um, I digress. It is something that's on the vehicles and is sparsely used, I think, in a lot of services, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. So we use all the way through, you know, one, two, and three, and it's a brilliant use, brilliant bit of kit. We have an ultra high pressure lance as well, so we can penetrate without going into the buildings. Ultimately, we shouldn't be going into a fire. I hate the the phrase, but the Yanks use hit it hard from the yard. You know, let's put a window in, let's squirt water from the outside, therefore not being contaminated in any way. Mm. Um, the level three for us, we'll put the fan on, ensure there's an exit route. It takes more uh, personnel to do, a little bit more, and as you said, a little bit more knowledge. Um, but knowledge is power. You know, you clear that smoke, clear that neutral plane above your head, you will not be contaminated anymore, simply. You know, it's as simple and as black and white as that. Um, back with the fans, you have a fan. I imagine your service don't use it on car fires. No. No, lots of service don't. I don't understand why. So we still have a BA team disappear into smoke of a car fire, don't we? Mm-hmm. Commonly. And then we put water on it. You can tell it's being jobbed because it's turning white. Yeah. And we're still in that smoke plume. We're still absolutely in that smoke plume in BA. If we have a fan, we the car's written off. We know the car's lost. If safe to do so, put the fan on. We control that smoke direction. We come in from the fan end, squirt yeah. water on the car. You know, it's it's so simple, but it's just mm-hmm. overlooked. I think about that with the rubbish fires as well, like just banging an open end into a skip fire where sometimes people won't even, and I didn't when I joined, you know, you just hold, you didn't even put a branch on the damn thing. It would yeah, be funny because yeah. they'd watch me hold it over the top of the skip and then switch it on and it's, you know, it goes everywhere. Yeah. But I wasn't wearing yeah. BA for it. You know, this is no. before I even done my BA course. I was just a fresh, you know, firefighter probation. Keen. Yeah, keen as mustard. And I'd climb in the damn thing, you know, walking yeah, around too. it, holding this open-ended thing over my shoulder. Um, yeah. But yeah, like you say, um, stuff like that, it's just a case of do I need to be? And um, yeah. one yeah. of the hazmat officers uh, we had on a little while ago was uh, really interesting because they said – and they give a great, wonderful breakdown, and I'll, I'll butcher it now. But you know, like when we go to one of these BA incidents, when you break it down as to what it is, it's a it's a black box with lots of unknown chemicals inside it, and they can spread and they can contact. Well, that, that's a hazmat job, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. would you go in there and roll around in it and put your put your fingers all over it? I mean, hazmat would. It's, we're not very good at it I don't think nationally yeah, anyway it's no. all a bit weird <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. with respect because I have my officers I'm sure and our nylos and everyone else is very well trained but largely from a firefighter's perspective we're a little bit cack at it and we don't fully understand it but we don't think of fires in the same capacity no, no it's just a job it's a great asbestos analogy isn't it because asbestos in itself is fine if undisturbed well that that plastic table over there is absolutely fine until I set fire to it. And that car, yeah. and it starts pissing this millions and millions of different oh. toxins all over Colours. the place. Yeah. Through my yeah. skin, in my eyes, yeah. in my lungs, everywhere. This enormous yeah. cocktail. And I'm not even yeah. thinking about it. Because it's what we do for a living. Yeah. Um, we will still risk our lives a lot cheesily to save save your life we will do that we will still go into burning buildings we will still save little johnny from the front and that's exactly what we do and that's right um we will still die of cancer in this job because of what we do but we shouldn't be dying at four times the national average if we could get that to below two you know or something or norm 
we should, you know, Eric PD, eliminate, reduce, isolate, contain. We should absolutely eliminate that. We shouldn't be going into a building, 2BA1 hosiery or left-hand search, even if there's nobody in there. Why are we doing that? You know, ultimately, mm. why are we doing that? We can see the fire often through the kitchen window. Let's smash the kitchen window, put the fire out. Let's not go in until we have to. It's just I know. so many things. I, and I agree with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm staying quiet there because part of me is like, I'm, and it's so bad. I still love it. Yeah, I'm, a yeah, moron. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a moron. I know I'm a moron, and it's just, you know, I'm, I, I, it's so hard, and it's hard for me from a CFBT and a BAI perspective because I'm like, we've got to give them exposure to real fire. Yeah, we do, and we, we do. Don't, you know, I know, and there's, there's so many sides to this coin. And Lars Axelson, we had him on recently, and <laughs> they, <clears throat> he's uh, he wears a full particulate suit because he does this very regularly, he wears that underneath his fire kit and all this sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. I wonder if we're just poorly disciplined in the UK in terms of our personal disciplines, because it doesn't even seem to blink for him. He's like, well, no, I just, I just do it properly. You know, I yeah. wear two sets yeah. of gloves, I wear my pathogen suit. I don't ever eat around it. I always wash. And it's... Yeah. it's when, you, when, you, when you do that, I get it. Like you say, you, you are massively reducing the risk. Really, I think a lot of the low-hanging fruit, well, this is not to say that procedurally we don't need to change environmentally, we don't need to change our buildings and everything like that. So much of it is behavior, though. It's exactly what you Absolutely. said. MBA shop, you know, there's got a shower and toilet next door. All right, yeah, just in this right fire kit, everyone. Let's go. Oh, actually, I'm just going to have a quick wee. After I've just done my set, I'm going to pop through there, fondle with myself, and then yep. come back out. Yeah, no, simple like, as that. Don't you even just... think about it. So going even further than that, we, we advocate in the service, in my service, that everybody wears nitro gloves. And it's brilliant, and they are mostly. when If you're touching anything you even suspect might be dirty, you should wear gloves, simply, yeah. and then ditch those gloves. Um, that's in, including your BA checks at 9 o'clock in the morning, 1800, handover stuff, all of that. Anything yeah. you do, any standard tests, all those. Um, we had somebody recently at a wildfire, fantastic, had nitro gloves on, looked at the business, was eating a sandwich with a nitro glove on. You know, it's just... Oh my God, really, really? So, yeah, we need to do much more individually and as a team and as a, a group of people. You know, you need to stand around and say, actually, Nobber, put your fucking gloves on. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get a t shirt actually that says, don't be a dick on it. And I'm going to give it to people because we need to not be dicks. Mate, I, um, I lost my shit a little bit with somebody on a fire behavior day recently. We'd given all the talk about it. So, we let them eat early in the morning because we say, oh, we're going to go about five hours now. We're going to skip lunch so we could just do the wear, do the decontamination, the shower, decontaminate all the kit, bag all your kit up, and then get you away. And then you can eat on the way back home or whatever. Yeah. And then whilst this person's waiting for their wear, you know, they're, they're, they're sneaking in between the vans and uh, eating. And um, mm. I went because so I was like, where's, you know, where's the third team? Because um, they're up next, they need to get to the board and blah blah blah. And I go and I yeah. find them there, and they're eating, and they're saying, "Oh yeah," and I'm just, I just completely lost my shit at them. And then mm. I wonder what we need to do about that. I don't know. Is that a disciplinary conversation? Yeah. Because if you perpetually don't wear your helmet on the incident ground, they're probably going to discipline you eventually. Yeah, yeah. A few, a few yeah. tells, <clears throat> then a sit down tell in the watch room, and a yeah. note for file. And then a right. We've discussed this three times now. Gonna, I'm going to give you a, this is a verbal warning. Okay. Yeah. This is your verbal warning. If you're seen 
in in a cordon at an incident without correct PPE on again, this will be this. I'm going to run you. Yeah. Um, and that's not what we want, but it's a bit like a child, isn't it? I said, don't touch the sharp knives. Yeah. yeah. yeah? Don't yeah. touch the sharp knives. Right. You, I've just watched you run across the kitchen with that sharp knife in your hand. Go to your room or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it is. It is. We need to. We absolutely need to go back a little. We need to stab. Because when you fall on that and stab yourself in the face, I'm going to deal with the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's as a service, you know. And again, my service has been fantastic, but there's a limit. If you're not helping yourself, we've now really luckily managed to get uh, particulate flashes at great expense. You know, they're Mm. 100 quid each or whatever. We've got 3,000 of those. And we were told initially, you're not having that. Uh, I was told that. And then I to Cambridge and, and managed to fight, right business cases and all of that. We've now got them, but that's on the back of you must shower after a BA wear. So in a CFBT environment, part of the pass or fail is that you shower and we've mandated that. So if you don't shower, you don't pass. And that's people oh, that you can't mate. do that. What yeah. a great shower. I'm going to be done that. Yeah. Great idea. Make people shower. They've got to shower because they'll sit in the back of a truck Go back to their home station, maybe an hour where I live. The tra- traffic's hideous on the M27, M3. They'll yeah. sit in a truck for an hour, gassing off amongst each other, eating, bloody doing whatever else, scratching, pick it, hand, you know, yeah, all of this yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're gassing off. So we've now contaminated the vehicle as well as each individual person. So it's a mandated. But because of that, we've managed to spend a few quid on PPE on the back of actually changing the way we do stuff. Yeah, um, We bought everybody towels as well because that was right. one of the things where they were like, Make sure you bring a towel, and then you get the odd dick, don't you? It's just like, oh, well, I'm supposed to bring my own towel. I tell you what, yeah. we'll give everyone a towel. Everyone gets a towel with your name on it, it's embroidered on really? it, so no one steals right. it. Yeah, right. And then, brilliant. Uh, yeah, as soon as you get there in the morning, have your right. The soap provided in the shower. Has everyone got a towel? Good. If you haven't got a towel, you can't because you can't, you can't, you know, you're not, you know, don't come into the briefing. You're not playing. You're not going to be part and taking part today. And then yeah. their manager sends an email and it's like, oh, you know, I gave this person the day off to come to the training. Well, they didn't bring a fucking towel. Yeah, exactly. It's in the journal instructions. Without their fire kit. I'm sure you'd be annoyed at them. Right, they've turned Absolutely. it without a towel. So they can't participate. It's, it's PPE. It's as simple as that. It's part of, it forms part of your daily activity. And that's the mindset shift we're looking for, isn't it? That's what we need to be, we need to be looking at. Yeah. So we important, need to treat mate. this seriously. It is. You know, the World Health Organization in May last year, the WHO said, as I'm sure you know, firefighting is now classed the same as smoking in that firefighting is carcinogenic to humans. It year wasn't before too. last. It's 2022 now. Year before it? last. It was. Christ, yeah. Know, here we are in January. Year before. Wow, <laughs> I blinked and missed it. So we know it to be as risky as smoking, but we still smoke. You know, oh, yeah, I'll give up. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You need to change. You need to change. Mm. It's killing you. You know, this is killing us. We're dying. I've been to too many funerals. I've been to too many fucking chemo sessions to know that this is not good for us. Um, Do you know what I see this as, though? Have you, there's a great book called Switch. I don't know if you've ever read it. And it talks about the elephant and the rider. Have you ever heard of this analogy? No. So the rider is your logical brain. Robbie, it's killing you. Stop smoking. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I've seen the report. I can throw the report at you and the statistics and 27 firefighters died and here's all the chemo. That's the rider. The elephant is the emotion. The elephant, and that's what this, this conversation is the elephant for me, one of many elephants. Because unless you 
want to do it because you've been emotively affected by a story because we learn through stories don't we you know if i tell you 27 million children are dying because of thirst in uganda you're like oh, i don't i can't comprehend that but it's just 27 million kids i don't know but if i show you a picture of tempeh who is three years old and she's carrying 27 kilos well we learn through stories it's how the bible was written and we need to it needs to be a sell not a tell do you know what i mean we need to yeah. sell this idea to people because it is in your best interest not mine it's a seatbelt yeah. that's what it is i can't make yeah, yeah. Seatbelt. i might catch you and then send you a photo of yourself and hit you with a big stick and give you a fine but you have to take the elephant and the rider i feel like logically the who and everything like that has given us all that information the rider is well informed but in the moment where it's like i just need the wee or i'm really i'm really actually hungry robbie or i do genuinely just need to get home to the kids that's where uh, you won't be able to pull the elephant because the elephant go oh it's just fucking convenient to do this yeah so yeah elephant and it doesn't hurt gotta take them both with you well, that's the thing, and it doesn't hurt. And because it, until it hurts, it doesn't hurt. So until you yeah. have that diagnosis, you haven't had a diagnosis. So you're fine. No. You're bulletproof. Um, you wear the oven gloves because it's really hot. Yeah. And you, yeah. you know, you only have to. Your child only has to touch the kettle once to go. Oh, that's really sucked. I'm not yeah. going to do that again. I'm going to hold it by the handle, or I'm going to get the tea towel. But like yeah. you say, this this immediate aspect of it and 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 i want to thank you so much for for giving us all the layers and all of the color to uh, to your personal experience and i know you're going to be traveling around and uh, and continuing to share this message um i want to be respectful of your time but is there any um bits you feel we haven't covered any pertinent pieces of information i'd love to have you on again in the future to be really honest with you but I'd love um, to. where would we want to signpost people to after this where where perhaps might they be able to see you i know you referenced you are speaking at different places Yep, so uh, I'm at Biggin Hill Airport in February, but I'm up to the conference with John Lord and speaking at the conference at the, the uh, Lowry Hotel in uh, Manchester. I'll be with you at Biggin Hill. I was supposed to be there with John, but I'm now going out to Saudi Arabia. Oh. I haven't told John yet, though, but by this time, he'll probably know. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, it's really just cool. it's harsh, but you just can't be everywhere, can you? But I am no, going no. to Hill with, um, with the Hunter team and... I think Brilliant. that one will be a great one as well because I think there's yeah. two individuals from pretty much every fire service across the UK is going to be there. Um, yeah. and some powerful speakers such as yourself. Um, yeah. So it's a um, what I'd like to, yeah, what I'd like to get on the back of that is we have a thing called a SNOMED code, which I'm sure you've heard of. I'm mm -hmm. hoping. Yep. Yeah. For people um, like that, so, please, please give us some layers about so, that. Yeah. So a SNOMED code. I won't break down the, the actual. Um, the letters of it but it's basically a, a system where we can record with our medical professionals whether that's primary or secondary healthcare so your gp or your ongoing surgery surgery if you have that a, a set of numbers one is a firefighter and the other one is exposure to hazardous toxicants so those two different numbers can be furnished to your gp when you go and see them um, it will flag that basically you are a firefighter and also you're exposed to a an industrial level of nasty uh, at work so they would then base their opinion so had i when i was diagnosed aged 34 i would suspect i would have had more scans more investigation etc based on my snowmed code than i did have because it wasn't a thing um i implore people to get their snowmed codes one to say they're a firefighter and the other to say they have toxic exposure and give those to their gps 
because it will change your diagnosis. The GP will act upon the information in front of them. If they know you're a firefighter, you can tell them as much as you want. But if they know that when they make their decisions in 20 minutes after your, you know, your appointment on what the future is for you, they would order a scan as opposed to not. Belt and braces. Um, so SNOMO code is critical. You must inform your GP of that. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, finally, from me, yesterday was a really good step forward. The Home Office have asked for a literature review of all things contaminants. So they're paying 40K or they've bid 40K for somebody or a company to come and read all of the current landscape of literature um, to make a better and a more informed decision. So I think the next step will be legislation on this um, based on what came out yesterday, won't it? And uh, that'll be the bit, like you say, where it doesn't rely on people emotionally being invested in it, although we want people to do it because it's the right thing to do. It'll be mandated. And that needs to be what it is because that avoids any complaints around funding or yeah. we're a small service, we're a small exactly. brigade. We're a, and then it becomes elitist and it's the old, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Small yeah. services have more firefighter contamination and, and higher, you know, the higher, higher likelihood of, um, of firefighter cancer because they simply don't have the luxury of, of size. But if it's mandated like everything else, then uh, yeah, yeah. creates an even playing field and an expectation and protects the protects you, me, you know, protects the employer yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And our children, we are now, I promise I nearly finished, we are, the, the chemicals that are in fires are changing our DNA. They are bolting onto our DNA as we speak, changing our profile. So not only does that affect our mental health, we are now creating a genetic flaw that we will pass on to our children. So my father had prostate cancer and unfortunately died of that. I am seven, I think, seven times more likely to succumb to that myself because of that genetic flaw. Um, we are, if if you've never had cancer in your family, as a firefighter, there's a potential that the, the chemicals involved in fire will change your DNA profile to therefore you will pass on that flawed cancer gene to your children. That's how significant really? this is. It's incredible, honestly. Wow. The science is incredible. Scary. Um, so I'm just going to pull that link, actually. So for people that want to go and find out about SNOMED, I know we briefly mentioned it there. I'm going to put a link for people to Wonderful. go and understand it because it, it is it's, it's Sierra November Oscar Mike Echo Delta. Um, it's not yeah. snow as in the snow you see outside. I'll put a link in there for people to go over to NHS uh, England and find out what that is. And then we will Brilliant. also put a link in for Anastec's report um so that people can go and look at that one that's the fbu how do they entitle it this is the minimizing the fire exposure to toxic <coughs> fire effluents this is the uclan an independent report by uclan with a forward by the fbu general secretary matt rack we will yeah. put that link in there as well uh, all freely available documents uh, this is wonderful not secrets folks please go in and have a look at them um thank you so much for your time brother really 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 no enjoy problem. getting to chat with you thank you for still being with us Thank you for sharing what you know better than anyone to be a finite period of time that we have available to us. And I always wonder, like, if you had a clock above your head and when you're going through something, the clock, the time on it dramatically drops and then you take some correct actions. Wouldn't that be a thing? Like every time you choose not to, like to go back to our conversation, you choose not to put the gloves on. Every time you choose not to carry out best your clock drops by yeah. a few hours or a day or a year do you know That'd what i mean every time you make the right decision it extends because he's probably that, doing yeah. that anyway and yeah okay yeah. i might get hit by a bus tomorrow but avoidant of those things within our sphere of control 
that's kind of what we're doing, you know? So hopefully, maybe maybe even people listen to something like this and because they have the awareness and perhaps hopefully it will change some of the decisions they make and the behaviors they walk into the fire station with tomorrow, yeah. they might make a few different decisions and they might get a little bit more time. I hope so, Pete. Don't be me, basically. Don't be me. <laughs> Mate, <clears throat> thank you so much, Tizan. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> Please send my love no to worries, the family man. and the dogs and everyone else and I will, I will see you soon. Cool. Thank you, Pete. The Firefighters Podcast was created to recognize, acknowledge, inspire, and hopefully even motivate these incredible individuals who have chosen to be part of the first responder community. Our driving purpose is to create a legacy resource for the current and future generations of firefighters and first responders. We get some incredible feedback from listeners and guests. And as the podcast grows, our desire to create longevity and sustainability means that we are asking for the support of our listeners. If you want to support the podcast, if you want to get discounts to our merchandise, hoodies, clothing, coins, patches, tallies, and also access to all of the incredible documents get shared with us from our podcast guests and sector leaders, then please head over to our Patreon page. And for just £3 a month, you can support support the future of the podcast please finally hit that follow subscribe or rate button on the platform you're listening and wherever you're in the world please support your emergency services responders and thank you for listening